Welcome to Eurocron, a podcast about people whose names you may not be familiar with now, but you will remember their stories. Hi, I'm Scott Pitney, the host for Eurocron. So, without further ado, let's jump right into our next extraordinary story. My next guest on your cron is Brian Trabig. Brian is an actor, musician, paranormal enthusiast, husband and father of two fur babies. Brian has lived on a boat for over 25 years and was actually born down by the water in Webster, Texas. His acting credits include theater, movies, television. He's a podcast and event host. Brian also conducts ghost tours the Haunted Galveston Ghost Tour, Ghost Hunting Stories and Conventions. Brian is also with us to bring awareness to the demolition of the Clear Creek Community Theater and is asking for help from Eurocron listeners. I had the privilege of meeting Brian in 2012 when we cast him for the role of Greenskeeper in the golf comedy 4, which can be seen at Watch 4. That's F-O-R-E, watch4.com. Brian's IMDB YouTube ghost tour info will be posted in the show notes at yourcron.com. Brian, welcome to Yourcron. Hello, Yourcron. How you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And everybody. We're doing great, sir. Um, Thanks for joining us. So there are so many directions that we can go. Where would you like to start? your extraordinary story well gosh, well let's see i was born a poor black child <laughs> by the name of navin johnson <laughs> oh no that, that wasn't me uh, <laughs> that oh, was gosh, steve martin I, yes that was steve martin sorry <laughs> and the little known sequel nobody knows who he talks about uh but anyway um i i i guess i should say my background in in all of this and what makes me the actor or the paranormal enthusiast and the boater and this day, you know, uh, my mom was, was a real spiritual person and she still is. Uh, my, my, my dad was a, uh, he went to two tours in Vietnam, you know, he was a, a military disciplined guy. And so I had a really nice balance in my life to be strong and soft at the same time. Look, forward to the spiritualism and also uh, to ground myself. I, I feel like I had a, a, a really good, I mean, it was a tough upbringing, being, you know, poor, being um, middle class, you know, back and forth. And, and I had a good balance to see two sides of a coin, which was really nice. And so I was able to act out and I was a little weird kid in school i was the weirdo i was into science and my mom gave me a ouija board to take to school and grade school just for fun and all and uh i was just the weird kid but uh, i wasn't the nerd you know i was i was into uh rock and roll in high school and so i got into a band um the teacher there in the small town in oklahoma that i was in for a small time uh, she got me into acting and uh, in high school early on. So I got into 
the science and paranormal at a very young age, got into the music later on, and then into the acting in high school. Uh, and it just, it, it, it exploded from there. And, uh, yeah, so I want to go back to the Ouija board just a minute because I, I grew up in that era of Ouija boards, and I'm I'm kind of on the other side. I you know I, I played the game, and uh, I was like, ah, this stuff is you know it's uh, you're moving it. I can tell you're moving it with your hands. I was that guy, you know. I have, for you guys that were uh, uh, into it, I was the opposite guy. <laughs> so uh, what? Um, Scott, I agree with you there. I agree with you okay. there. And, and, and first of all, I'm, I'm scientist number one, and then I go into the paranormal. If I can't figure it out scientifically, uh, then forget it. You know, uh, then, then I will say, okay, there's something abnormal here. And I agree with you with the Ouija board. I never believed any of it. I would mess with it, but I wouldn't trust anybody because I didn't have a device that measured it and said, yes, this is true. So <laughs> I agree with you there. Yeah, well, and I wasn't necessarily looking for agreement. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't missing something. You know, if uh, if it's ever actually worked for somebody, I want to be the first one to know about it. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so going back to uh, acting. Well, first of all, music. What what instrument do you play, or instruments do you play? Sixteen. I was given a uh, electric guitar for my birthday. Um, oh, let me go back. When I was 12, I was given an electric guitar, but then I, my scientist side tore it apart and said, I could put this back together, and I ruined my first guitar. Uh, and then they gave me a second chance when I was 16, <laughs> and I did not take that one apart. And uh, I started um, playing in a, in a high school band with, uh, with some seniors when I was a sophomore. And it, that just got me going. And instead of going out and party when I was younger, I would I would stay in my room and learn that darn guitar. I just knew if I just learned this guitar, it'd be great. I got into the. I I wanted to be in the school jazz band, but they wouldn't let me do it unless I was in actual bands. So I said, "Well, come on, what do I do?" And they gave me some symbols to be in the band or whatever, so I could be in jazz band. But. Uh, I, I learned guitar, uh, eventually learned the bass, drums. I play a little keyboard and I sing. So I, I'm a one man band kind of thing. Well, you're, you're uh, speaking my language because, uh, every instrument you just mentioned I have in my studio and I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself, um, excellent at any of them, unfortunately, but I enjoy it very much. Um, uh, play my bass, play all my guitars, keyboard, drum. Uh, don't have a drum set, but a drum pad. And uh, have a blast with all that. So we need to jam sometime. Oh, dude, I understand. And I don't have a drum you know, set myself. I have an electric drum set that folds like really nicely. You know, living on a boat, you got to be compact. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's not a real acoustic set, but it gets the job done. That's really cool, man. That sounds great. Yeah, and we're going to get to the boat stuff in a minute because uh, I've, I've got a lot of uh, interesting questions on that. So um, uh, now learning the guitar, um, I, I'm guessing we're, we're pretty close to the same age. So, you know, and I've, I've been playing about the same amount of time as you. I started as a teenager as well. 
my friend's brother's guitar had two strings on it. And we started with that playing Black Sabbath songs, you know, one string at a time. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's how I officially started learning guitar. But then I picked up uh, Mel Bay's guitar book and started learning chords and that kind of stuff. Uh, but now there's YouTube and just all kinds of cool yeah. uh, tools. So how did you learn to play guitar? Oh, man, I, I, I trained myself by ear. It was a lot of by ear, and also um, my buddies would have uh, tablature um, uh, books. I couldn't read music at all. I still don't read music. I'm always by ear, um, and I don't even use tabs anymore. Like like you said, YouTube is there. So, But that's how I first started. I would just I would try to figure it out with my ear, just back up the disc, keep on doing it, and figure it out. Yeah, I, I was pretty much the same way. Um, I did learn how to read music. I played trombone in eighth grade band, and so I, I learned how to read uh, the bass clef, and then my mom actually taught me uh, how to read music on the piano, combining the bass and treble clef. And so, I, but, oh, wow. I, but uh, then when I went to guitar, I, I never read music for guitar. I, I learned the open chords with the Mel Bay and learned the simple songs that he had on there. And uh, then uh, when I got an electric guitar, I discovered power chords, and that was a game changer. Um, and, and I, too, um, you know, the tablature was everything. But I found it, and I don't know if you feel this way, I found it difficult. You're listening to a song. You mentioned you play by ear. And I found it difficult sometimes to figure out chords and lead riffs and stuff. You know, for me, it was with a cassette recorder and rewinding and going over and over again, trying to figure it out. And then YouTube comes along and you can actually see how to play it. And, you know, it's just incredible. Yeah. And some of these songs I couldn't, I couldn't do. Like I would listen to a YouTube song and I'd be like, it's everything's melded together like in a blender. I can't, I can't decipher which is which or where anything. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, things like Nirvana bands, like Nirvana. Oh, that was simple. I can figure that out pretty easy. I'm like, oh yeah. 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 Exactly. Easy. Exactly. So going in. Uh... So I, I've I've been I've been playing you know all this time, and I have a band that I it's called Ghost Among Us, and. Uh, I have an album out and things like that on my YouTube. You could find songs there, but my wife and I have done music videos too, which is really fun. She's a, she plays flute, but she's been featured in one of my songs. Oh, very cool. Very cool. That flute seems like it would be a difficult instrument to play. Yeah. That's why I leave it to her. <laughs> it sounds like uh, one of your fur babies I can uh, hear. <laughs> yeah, they they're allowed to just sit out on the deck and uh, bark at whoever they want. It's not <laughs> nice. But. <laughs> well, it sounds like a great life. Um, so going back to acting, <clears throat> what are some of your most memorable acting roles and why, Brian? Well, my favorite role ever to play is Sherlock Holmes. I love that character so much. I played him three times already. And apparently I do well enough to convince two directors to <laughs> to uh, accept me in the role. Um, I love playing Sherlock Holmes. I played Leo Bloom in The Producers. Mel Brooks is The Producers, which is really, really fun. Um, 
being on stage with friends and being on stage with my wife is really fun. Nice chemistry, good people. I, those are the great roles that I like. Um, but just being on stage, the theater, I love that a lot more than TV's fun and movies are fun. But to have the live studio audience there laughing at you and, you know, kind of like a TV show, it's just, it's so, it's so fun. I love it. I'm trying to think of other roles that I've played. Uh, there's so many. Yeah, and I want to touch on that a bit because I, I've heard other actors say the same thing, that they really enjoy the live. Well, there's a little little give and take. So they enjoy the live because they're getting the energy back from the audience, but it's also a little nerve wracking too, right? You, you don't, uh, you don't get a, you don't get to do the scene three or four times and, and have them pick the best one. Oh, well, when you do 12 shows, you can kind of do that, but your best show is always your last show and you wish you could start from there. Um, but the, it, it, if you're not nervous, you're not doing it right. And there was one time I was playing the title role of Jekyll and Hyde, and I wasn't going to be Jekyll and Hyde. I was going to play Dr. Lanyon. Mm. And this was when um, Hurricane came. And uh, not Ike, the one before that. Uh, uh, Rita? Right? Rita? Rita? Yeah, no. Yeah. No, it was uh, 2008. Which one was that one? I can't, I can't think right now. Too early. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it was, uh, we were about to open uh, in a week, and then the hurricane shows up. The guy who was playing Jekyll and Hyde left for Austin, and then three days before we opened, he called and said he wasn't going to come back. And so the director said, you're Jekyll and Hyde now, Brian. I said, oh, my God. Okay. And so I had to learn this whole script in three days because we were going to open. Everybody was okay. Um, and so I was nerve-wracking. I was looking at the script right before I went on stage. And I would put it down and rush out, take a deep breath and do my line. And uh, it is nerve-wracking, Scott. Yes, it's, it gets crazy, especially when you blank. That's the scariest thing. I was given this short speech, and then I just blanked. And the guy whispered, uh, thank you. Uh, that's all I had to say was thank you. And he would have left. And I was like, oh, oh okay, thank you. <laughs> but it is so scary when you've got 150 people in the audience and it's quiet as hell and they're waiting for you to say your line that you may have or may not have forgotten. <clears throat> oh, my God. Yes. Why do I do this to myself? <laughs> I do it every time. <laughs> I'm doing another play soon, and oh my gosh, so many lines. Yeah, and I, I wonder if, you know, because we're so hyper-focused on ourselves and our performance and that kind of thing, if you, if people leave going, you know, their predominant thought is, you know, did I like it, or, you know, man, that guy forgot his line. I, I think it's the former. I, I think, you know, they, they might mention it maybe one time, but I, I think they leave there just going – you know, did I enjoy myself? Was that entertaining? Was that fun? What are your thoughts on that? You're absolutely correct. Uh, you only get like real theater goers who have seen play over and over again and know the lines from heart, you know, mm. that will catch you. And like, 
oh, you know, you said that line wrong. But hey, that was a great thing, you know, but you're absolutely right. The majority of the time, they don't, they don't see that you messed up at all. As long as you keep it natural and you keep them entertained, it, it works. Uh, and yes, uh, and they're, and them enjoying it, that, that makes me so, so happy. Yeah. That's the goal there. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about your podcast. What's it about? Well, I didn't, I don't, I haven't done that in a while. Uh, and I, I found out that I only do the podcast when I'm single, apparently. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I did it for about four or five years. And it was called Simplicity with Brian Traby. And it was a show about taking complex issues and simplifying them so people could better understand them. Uh, the first episode was a guide to breathing. No, <laughs> but uh, no, I wanted to keep it simple. And at first the format was just, okay, let's talk about religion. And I talked about every religion out there and compared them and, you know, talked about it and, you know, try to, try to simplify it a little bit. Then I went on to having interviews with uh, musicians, actors, scientists, authors, whole lot of different people, musicians, and uh, that became fun. And then I changed it up a little bit and I had, um, people on to give tarot card readings and those were my biggest shows oh my gosh i would be on for three hours and have the phone calls going for three hours and i would have to just say call back next time sorry <laughs> kids you know but uh, it was free tarot card readings and that was fun um i would also do a test your psychic abilities through remote viewing in which I would take four objects and I'd place them on my countertop and I would have the audience call in and not guess what the objects were, but to visually see remotely through telepathy, you know, and they would try to figure it out what they, what they were. And in return, whoever called would have to have an object for me to try to visually see that way it was fair. And Scott, actually, you know, we were quite successful a lot of the times. It was pretty scary mm -hmm. and pretty fun. So I did that. We did we did social experiments. We did psychic experiments, interviews, and things like that. But uh, no, I haven't done it in a while. I do a uh, kind of the Brian Trebek show live video on Facebook sometimes, but nothing's consistent. It's just fun now. That's cool. Yeah, and I, I like the... The first one mentioned um, simplicity uh, that um, sometimes you, you get bits and pieces of a topic. Religion, for example, you use that one that you get bits and pieces from here and there. It's nice to, to sort of compact it and simplify it and understand, you know, the, maybe the basic history of uh, Islamic or Catholicism or, you know, some of these religions and and start there with, with the basics, you know, how long they've been around, what's the history, what are they based on? Uh, Absolutely, I like that. And, I, and I did it because there wasn't a show out there like that. And I feel that um, the show last week, tonight with John Oliver has kind of taken over that, which makes me happy. John Oliver just does a darn good job, takes one, one subject and runs with it for a half hour. So, mm. you know, and it's, it's important. Yeah. 
you know, I have to check that out. So I've really been looking forward to jumping into this topic. Um, and for selfish reasons, I guess a little bit, I've always been intrigued with the idea of living on a boat. And in fact, when I got out of college, before I even looked at apartments, I went and looked at boats. And that was rather fun because a lot of times the owners were, you know, not uh, even in the state. They were somewhere else. And uh, I said, you know, I'd like to come look at your boat. And said, you know, go uh, check in with the marina, get the keys and enjoy it <laughs> you know, for the weekend even. I mean, they... They were very gracious, but um, have never pulled the trigger on that. But you, sir, have been doing it for 25 years, which uh, is very cool to me. So talk about life and what it's like living on a boat. Well, that's been to live on a boat. Uh, the day I was born, my dad was out test driving a boat, which pissed my mom off completely. Um <laughs> But, uh, so I'm, <laughs> that's how that started. And then, uh, my dad throughout my whole life has always had some sort of pleasure cruiser, uh, cruiser of some sort. And then eventually, um, when he retired, he decided he's just going to live on a boat. And, and so out of high school, I bought a little 23 foot sailboat and stuck it right next to his boat. And that was kind of like my bedroom you know, so to speak, like I'd hang out with my dad. And then when we got tired of each other, I'd go to my room <laughs> to the boat next door, you know, and, uh, and, uh, so that's, that got me started there. Uh, I would fix it up, clean it up and sell it and get a bigger boat and keep going and keep going. And then one time in a silly spin, my buddy wanted to get an apartment together. We we're best friends. We're still best friends. And I said, all right, all right, let's do an apartment. That way we help each other out. Maybe we'll progress in life. And so I was in an apartment for one year, and that was it. No more. Forget <laughs> it. I will never give $12,000 to someone and not have a place to call my own. Mm. That's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. and, and so the, the boat life is so cheap, you know, and the maintenance, okay, okay. That's a little bit, but uh, the boat life is really cheap. You can find a, a boat with no engine that you just want to live on for, what, $10,000 less than if it had an engine. I mean, you're looking at, you could own your own little house for $2,500. Hmm. And it just happens like that. But uh, the prices vary. It depends on your, on your, uh, on what you like, the style, the setup, and all the setups are just, so different and I love the older style, style boats because you could actually work on them They made it they gave you room to get in there and work on the wires and so living on a boat I've worked on boats because hey if your boat starts sinking you got to figure out how to fix it so I quickly learned how the electrical system and the plumbing systems and the waste systems worked on the boat I started working with a guy and, uh, and I did that for a while, quite a while, about five years working on boats and made quite a bit of money doing that. <clears throat> and now got a little 20, uh, 33 foot carver. My wife and I love to set up. Uh, my dad has a 40 foot Cushing 
trawler, which is a really nice boat from the 80s. And we just love it. And luckily, my wife loves it. We have a beautiful view. We're away from everybody. Rent is cheap. We own the darn thing. We don't owe anybody money. You don't have to pay a land tax. You don't have to mow your lawn. <laughs> and the community, we look out for each other. It's like a tiny town, and, and then you just drive out of your neighborhood, and there's the big city. Hmm. It's, just, it's just paradise. I, I'm, I feel like I'm, I've been retired since I was in high school, you know? Hmm. It's so weird. You paint a wonderful picture, and now I'm, I'm more motivated than ever. Um, and I, I like um, how you described the, the upgrades uh, as, you, as you have progressed buying new boats, uh, similar to a house. <clears throat> um, yeah. You know, every time you buy a house, you're like, okay, you, you learn what you want by, by the, the current place that you're living in. So what... Um, you still live in on a sailboat, correct? No, it's a cruiser. It's a powerboat. Oh, it is a powerboat. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. After you know, getting real serious in relationships, sailboats weren't really a good thing. the The women always liked liked the room more than the going out. Right in the boat. Right, kind of Brian. What is, What is your take on uh, catamarans? Oh, man, of course. Uh, Waterworld with Kevin Costner. I was like, I fell in love with that cool boat. I think his, his was a trimaran, though. But uh, I, I love those. Yeah, those are really cool. A uh, buddy of mine, he built his own catamaran or trimaran. Uh, and it is gorgeous. But I dig it. I like their setups. I've seen some really cool catamarans. Uh, and the styles are getting really, really sleek and stuff like that. But. Yeah, I dig it. You could put a, uh, you could put a, um, oh, water set up on top or something, you know. Yeah. So if one were to want to live on a boat like you're doing, or perhaps even sail around the world or far away, um, what kind of boat and setup would you recommend? Oh boy. Well, I have taken a 32 foot island packet from Isla Mujeres across the Gulf to here. And that was 30 foot, 32 foot island packet. And that was five days on the water, Scott. Mm. I don't recommend that. So I don't recommend <laughs> that. I would recommend anything larger than 40 foot and on, you know, to really go comfortably. But some, some guys, they're, they're fine with that. But I was not fine with that. It moved too much. You couldn't even go to the bathroom without acting like a monkey. Mm. I mean, we were going back and forth, back and forth. Um, but a catamaran, you could probably get away with a uh, little 38-footer. That'd mm-hmm. be pretty cool. For two lots people. Lots of supplies, lots of training. Lots of training. And, yeah. Uh, extra parts. If you got to replace a fan belt on on the fly, you got to have all that stuff. Filters, extra oil, extra anything. Mm-hmm. 
it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I want to overdo it than, than sell you on it. I'd rather have you worry about it than think it's a breeze because if you overdo it, it's better. <laughs> right, right. Now, I actually read, uh, there were some articles. He may have even written a book. Uh, his name's Bob Bitchum. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he wrote about his adventures sailing around the world. And uh, his writing style was pretty straightforward, plain language type style. And <laughs> most of what he wrote about was repairing his boats. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, every once in yeah. a while, he'd be out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It would be the water would just be um, smooth and the sun would be setting. And, you know, he'd be swimming in the middle of the Pacific and he'd say, you know, this is what makes it all worth it. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, those are those moments. Yeah. That's why, I mean, that one trip, turned me off of going out. It, it, it just seems more work and stress than I want. I'm more of a just let's just dock off here and let's look into the sunset and have a drink and just relax. Yeah, <laughs> not worry about the thing breaking. Uh, you can uh, go to the grocery, liquor store, whatever you want to do uh, if you need to. So I, I get that. I definitely get that. Um, so obviously in our part of the world, hurricanes are a threat. Uh, and you mentioned one earlier, what, what kind of, um, what is that like when a hurricane is approaching Galveston? What do you do? I'm sure you keep a close eye on it, but you know, how close does it have to get uh, for you to start taking action? And what are some of those actions that you have to take? Well, we can prepare for it like really quickly. And number one, I already have the boat prepared like like right now. Like I could walk away and be okay with it because you have that time to do it. And it's just extra lines. You can just have them there, make sure everything's secure. And uh, there was a few things. What we did was we rode out Ike for a little bit and there was one day that the boat just would not stop rocking as much as it, it, it was way more than it should have been. Mm. Uh, I mean, of course it's a hurricane, okay. <laughs> but uh, it was just annoying more than anything. Mm. So we went to my grandmother's in Friendswood mm. for a day or two. And when it subsided a little bit, we went back to the boat. There was half power. But that was okay. That was okay. We just, you know, we just survived. It's like luxurious camping. But it's it's a give and take. When you're married, you listen to what your wife wants to do. Uh, and if she wants to go inland, you do that. Um, if if you know what's going on, and you and you're smart about it, you can write it out pretty well. It all depends on the situation. Uh, you just got to read the hurricane, but don't be dumb. If, if, if you can get out way quickly, uh, uh, way sooner than they tell you. But I never worry. I, I guess it's just, I'm looked out for, I suppose. And I, I, I shouldn't have that feeling like I used to as a kid, like I'm invincible, you know? I shouldn't have that feeling. I, I play it smarter now, but we just have time to, to prepare, which is really nice. 
I never worry about it. We have insurance. What are you going to do? Life is life. Yeah. And for you uh, single men listening, uh, what Brian said about listen to your wife, that's great advice, by the way. Not just for boats, but everything. <laughs> just makes it easier. I mean, if, the, if, you have a, if you have an opinion on one little thing, like, no, I don't want onion rings. Okay, okay. Stick up for yourself. But everything else. <laughs> <laughs> everything else but onion rings. That's right. <laughs> we'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LaVon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LaVon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as is productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LeBon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LeBon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871. Or contact LeBon at Soul so let's jump into the subject of paranormal how did you become a paranormal enthusiast, Brian? Well, like I said, uh, when I was a kid, my mom gave me the Ouija board, and, and she would just talk to me about it. I mean, she would answer my questions. I would ask her about death, and, and she would tell me about ghosts and her experiences. She would, she would tell me about her stories seeing ghosts and her psychic awareness. And, I mean, she, she's a fascinating woman. And so ever since I was a kid, I was really into it. And so I went to the library and I would get books about Bigfoot, UFOs, vampires, chupacabras, everything and anything that was oddball. Um, I, I saw a little bit of stuff that didn't seem, uh, you know, I, I was I was safe and I was weary of the evil part of the paranormal stuff. And so I, I was very careful throughout my life. Um, fear helped me with that. <laughs> I didn't want to get eaten or anything, like <laughs> some monsters. But anyway, uh, I've always been fascinated with it. And living here next to Galveston really got me going because it's one of the most haunted places in America. And as a kid, I would go to Galveston. And I would have a list of all these places that were supposedly haunted. And I would take photos of the outside of the buildings, hoping to catch a ghost or something in the window. And, uh, and so I've always been fascinated by it. I would write stories and write songs about, about it. And then cut to about eight years ago or so, I saw an ad. And 
and they were looking for tour guides in Galveston as a uh, ghost tour and historical guide. And I was, I was fascinated. I was like, oh, that, that's right up my alley. I love the history of Galveston. I love ghost stories. Heck yeah. And the pay seemed cool. So I, I called the guy up and we talked for like three or four hours and we sparked a really cool relationship and he hired me and it, it was uh, one of the best jobs I ever had. Uh, I've worked for him for about four or five years and I still do uh, on and off work, PR work for him. But the, the island of Galveston, I don't know how much you know about this, but uh, uh, the great storm of 1900 totally, totally started that whole thing. I mean, a, a lot of things happened in that. That island has seen so much death through fires, hurricanes, murders, and suicides, and just uh, a plague. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. And that island is strong. I mean, when that hurricane hit in 1900, gosh, those stories, I, I can't even get into it without getting emotional. But uh, killing over 16,000 people there in the surrounding areas and things like that, um, after, after that hurricane wiped everything out, they, they had over, let's say, 12,000 on the island that were dead. Well, what can you do with these bodies, okay? What are you going to do with them? Well, the authorities went around and went to the survivors of the island, gave them some whiskey and held a gun and said, all right, you're going to help us gather these bodies. Uh, if not, you're going to join them. And so everybody was gathering these bodies and putting them in piles and then taking them and putting them on barges and sending them out 20 miles out to sea, weighing their feet down, hoping that will get rid of the bodies. Well, a week later, bodies started washing up on the shore. So now you have thousands of dead bodies on the shore, washed up. Not only are they dead and stinky, they're bloated. Now what do you do with them? You got to burn them. Well, you can't do that right now. You gotta, they're waterlogged. So what they had to do was they had to make sure they dried them out. They put these in, they put all the bodies in piles all around the island and they burned them in funeral pyres all around. And what did they do? They just buried it. They put sand and dirt all over the place to bury all the bodies. So the entire island is a cemetery. The entire place is a cemetery. When you're walking down the Strand and you're partying and you're drinking your beer and having Mardi Gras, you're walking on graves. When they were doing some construction downtown, they found a mass grave when they were digging into the ground. They had to cover up the story and cover up the whole situation and they did something else. Mm. So there are a lot of lost souls on that island and you could feel it when you drive over the causeway and it's it's horrific what's happened but after the storm they pulled themselves up and they they raised over 2100 buildings and they they uh, filled the bottom with dirt they raised the island it was an amazing feat and in this time well this was the booming galveston but during this time they created the houston Zip channel and took a lot of the business from galveston so galveston was not the wall street of the southwest anymore um but 
that that place right there is really haunted and so i would enjoy i would i would have over 100 people on a tour and i would have a personal speaker amplifier and i would tell the stories for two hours of these people and their experiences and what has happened i would go through what a ghost is like the stages of energy it goes through and why uh, my passion with it, uh, it made me be able to answer the questions and and relate to the people and uh i had a i had a damn blast doing that tour and then we would do ghost hunt which was really fun we would pick a a haunted place like the ashton villa um uh, one of the oldest homes and then uh the samuel may williams home that that was built in 1839 uh we would have ghost hunts we would encourage people to come in and bring paranormal equipment and we would stay there until 3 30 in the morning that would be fun uh, we did cemetery tours gosh it was it was a blast I wish I would have known about that, Brian, because I happen to be a huge hurricane and meteorologist enthusiast. Um, and I can, I can talk about the 1900 storm all day. In fact, you've probably read this book um, called Isaac storm written yes. by Eric Larson's. It's probably the best yes, best read i'm sure you would agree about that storm um the information that you described uh with taking the bodies out to sea and then they they're floating back and uh you, you you were dead on with all that but there's so so much more in this book and the the character that it's based on isaac who um back then it was called the u.s weather bureau which today is the national weather service he was the one stationed in Galveston, and, and the book sort of raises the question, did he warn people in time, and did he do everything in his power to warn people? you got to remember, 1900, they're, um, they're relying on Morse code information from ships out at sea and, and this kind of thing, and, and we're really uh, at a loss. A lot of people thought that storm was heading to uh, Florida. They know it crossed Cuba, obviously, because it, it you know, they had communications with Cuba, but um, anyway, if uh, if anyone has an interest in hurricanes at all, especially that storm, again, it's called Isaac Storm by Eric Larson. It is a fantastic read, and uh, but I never really made the connection because I, I that was going to be one of my questions: is is why is Galveston uh, known to be one of the uh, you know I. I forgot how you word it exactly, but it's known for ghosts. And that makes a lot of sense because of yeah. that storm. If, if you're walking on my grave, I mean, and I'm, <laughs> I'm dead. I'm like, there's no respect here. Really? Yeah. That, I mean, there's, there's so many aspects of it that you could think of. And yes, there's, there's so much death, not even just from the, the hurricane and stuff. And there's actually a story that, uh, we got into, that Jack the Ripper may have showed up for a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty convincing, if you ask me. And a lot of these stories, I don't just willy-nilly. I'm just like, I'm like, oh, okay, Dash. Oh, okay. 
I'll, I'll do it because you pay me. I'll say it because you pay me. No, what he does is he, he does his research so well. And if somebody tells him a story, he's got to make sure he sees it in their eyes that they're telling the truth, all this stuff. He does his own historical research. Uh, and that's why I was so enthusiastic about telling the stories because I agreed with him. I was like, wow, you're really onto something. Okay, let's do this. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because um, back then, as you alluded to, Galveston was the thriving city in Texas. It wasn't Houston. And that storm changed everything. Yep. Um, you know, besides all the death, it, it really changed the course of history. And um, you and I being film people, are you surprised that that has not been made into a movie yet? Scott, that was, that was my next thing I was going to say. Why the hell? I mean, I, I remember Warner bought the rights to a script, uh, and this was 10 years ago when they talked about it. And then there was a movie that came out called Galveston, and it wasn't even filmed in Galveston, and it had nothing to do with the storm or something else. Um, but I know this could be like a huge epic blockbuster movie. Of course you're going to have the relationships like they do, like the Titanic. Okay, they're going to have all these little families, and we're going to focus on little families and everything. But the, 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 the making of the storm uh, with Isaac and all that stuff, and the aftermath, you got to do the aftermath too and show what they're doing today, what it is today. It should be like Galveston, the body that won't die, you know, kind of thing. But yeah. it would be huge. Yeah. I, don't, I don't understand. I don't know what's stopping it. It's the greatest natural disaster that the U.S. has ever seen. And, yeah. and, and if you read that book, um, it could easily be adapted to a screenplay because it's got all the elements of a fantastic movie. You mentioned all the, you know, the B stories, the storylines with family and all that. But uh, and obviously it's going to be a, a very high budget film, you know, to do it right. Uh, storms are always kind of difficult to make real. But um but but that actually could be a very short part of it. You know, it's it's like you say, the aftermath is it's just incredible. When you read about these people coming in from uh, Houston and all these places around, um, you know, on these boats paddling and bodies just floating and just pushing all these bodies out of the way. I mean, those those kind of scenes would just be terrifying, but also bring the reality of what... Um, what is kind of, unless you're from this area, is not a real well-known topic, I don't think. Do you agree with that? No, I, I agree. There's people who, at least one or two people who show up on every single tour had no idea. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it, it, yeah, I just, I wonder, I wonder if there's, I mean, because not only does the island have all that going for it, it has mafia secrets you know mm. you know there was a lot of stuff going down in galveston i mean way back then it was a pretty popular place um, with some famous people um gambling and drugs uh crime and the mafia i i don't even i can't even think of the name right now i probably shouldn't even say the name so i won't uh <laughs> <laughs> but it has a lot of i mean a lot of secrets do it as well so maybe uh people in control don't want that story told or something i i don't know i don't know yeah. there's something else going on yeah yeah there's 
um, according to the book anyway, a lot of gambling and, you know, it was a, a very entertaining place to live for, uh, for adults and families. And yeah, it, uh, it would be really cool to capture that in the film of, um, I, I just kind of think of it as like a New Orleans type atmosphere, I guess, is the closest thing yeah. I can think of. And they of. could do a, like a, a quick skim of Galveston's timeline in the movie, you know, talk about, I mean, Galveston had many firsts than, I mean, than any other town in Texas. Galveston had the first post office in Texas, the first uh, electric lights, the first uh, school for nurses, the first a lot of stuff hmm. before any other town in Texas. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And and as you uh, pointed out to you, I mean, you can ask 10 different people what the death toll was and you'll get 10 different answers because people really don't, yeah. it's really not clear and understandably so. Um, but, uh, you know, Galveston, of course, got the most of it, but a lot happened inland too. I know... When I lived out in Katy, I'd go into some of those restaurants and they would have pictures from the Galveston storm and there were maybe three buildings left in an area. And this is in Katy, which is 70 miles inland. So you can imagine all the destruction um, along that path. And, and, and we all know how hurricanes can, can continue in the United States and flood and, and you know, just wreak havoc until they uh, spin off to the northeast and head out to the North Sea. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you could go to YouTube and find actual video footage from when Thomas Edison brought his video camera down there. Uh, and you could see the destruction and the people picking up the bodies and stuff. It's a pretty crappy clip, but it's there. Oh, I got to check that out. on YouTube. Yeah, I got to check that out. I, I didn't know about that. Thanks for bringing that up. That's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the Clear Creek Community Theater. What is the history of the theater, Brian, and how can your Cron listeners help? Well, it is the Clear Creek Community Theater. This this theater group has been around for over 56 years or so, and it was started by, and, and, and it's over by the NASA Road, and it was started by uh, the NASA's astronauts and their wives and 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 they kind of started the theater group and they didn't even have a building to perform in they just were by clear lake and they just gathered people around and they did a show and they eventually got a building and they would move around and, and perform there uh one time they were at the hilton hotel performing uh, and eventually they went to a building on Upper Bay Drive right across from NASA. And that's the most recent place that I've been to. And I fell in love with the theater. I fell in love with the group. Um, the the theater director uh, right now, she is, uh, her whole family uh, is integrated into the theater. Uh, I've worked with her son's um, her oldest son, I worked with him on a TV show called Stop the Threat. Uh, that was fun. And then her youngest son, he cast me 
in my first play there. Hmm. And at first, and, and this is kind of intricate. I'm gonna I'm gonna add one story to another. Uh, I just came out of another theater, and I wanted to try this theater, and I was nervous, you know, because I I started I created kind of a family at another theater, and then that had, uh, I left them, and so I was afraid to try a new theater, and I almost didn't do it, and I said something told me the angels told me just go. There's something very important. Go. And I said, okay, okay. And so the show was The Haunting of Hill House, which was right up my alley. And I said, okay, okay. And so I go audition for The Professor. And I get the part. And I'm asking the director. And I say, uh, so who else did you cast? And, and who plays my wife in the play? And he told me. And so I contacted the actress and I uh, well, this was after we had a read through and we did a few rehearsals and I contacted her on Facebook and I said, uh, I was kind of being flirty or whatnot. I said, Hey, you know, maybe we should talk about, uh, our characters past. Like, did we meet in college? You know, you know, what's going on? Well, anyway, I eventually married that woman. i thought it was leading to something like that (laughs) yeah i i met my wife there and i got married on that stage Mm. and and so and i've done so many plays there and it's such a great community and everybody who's been to that theater just love every show and everybody who's ever been on stage it's just a great great thing and uh, now the Methodist Hospital, who owns the building, wants to expand. And so they need to turn our theater into a parking lot because that's, that's important. Mm. So what we've been doing is scrambling to get – well, here's the thing. I, I won't say so much bad about the hospital, but uh, – they did give us the deadline and did help us out a little bit to uh, get some movers. So we've been scrambling to get everything out of the theater, furniture, props, costumes, electrical, lighting, everything we can, put them in trucks and take them to this temporary storage unit, and which is kind of far away from this new theater that we're looking at, it's, it's just, it's, it's bittersweet because the theater we're going to seems to be a bigger and nicer, but financially we're just having a lot of trouble. I mean, we weren't prepared for this. We didn't, we went, we didn't get that much of a notice. And so we're afraid that they'll demolish this place before we get everything out of there. So it's a little scary. And because of this virus, not a lot of people can be in the same room together. So we've assigned like three or four people to go one day to move stuff. And then three or four people to move the next day. And after this interview, I'm going to the theater myself because I'm on the list today. Mm. Uh, But yeah, that's, that's what's happening. And, but this theater has thrived, and it's going to thrive, no matter what. But it's just tough financially, and uh, 
uh, it's exhausting. It's a lot of work doing these plays for free. You know, a lot of people don't know all the work that goes into it, man. All the work that people, they, they go to work during the week, they get off of work, they go to the theater, they build sets, they memorize lines, they paint, they buy stuff out of their own pocket just to make sure that the public is entertained and that we have just enough money to do it again next month. It's, it's just so generous. And, uh, I don't know. And there was a show that we were going to do, the the guys and the gals, they built this beautiful set, beautiful, beautiful set. You could live in that set. And they memorized all their lines, ready to go. This virus hit. Now they can't perform it. Mm. Now they can't perform. They had to destroy their entire set that they worked on for nothing. And now hopefully they'll be able to perform at least two weekends at the new theater when that happens. And uh, right now I'm apparently in a play for them and we've been rehearsing through Zoom. And uh, it's, it's kind of odd, first of all, you know, rehearsing on Zoom, but to memorize all these lines without a future, not knowing what the future may hold, hmm. you just hope yeah. that it'll happen. But uh, clearcreekcommunitytheater.com, you could go there uh, and it'll have information of where you could donate or a phone number there where you could uh, ask if you could help volunteer, move stuff, anything. But it's a great, great community theater. Well, good. Well, we'll certainly do our part on your cron and put that information in the show notes. So uh, listeners, if you can help, time and money is what they need at the Clear Creek Community Theater. So uh, thank you for sharing that, Brian. And I know you've got to uh, run here pretty soon uh, with your duties over there. Um, it's, it's been, uh, a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, so many topics we've covered and, um, really, really great to catch up with you. We come now to what we call on your cron, our legacy question. And what that is, is in a hundred years from now, say someone is listening to this recording. What do you want them to know about you? or perhaps life in general? Hmm. Well, I should always remember this. Don't exhaust yourself when trying to help others. You always have to recharge. It's okay to be a little selfish because if you're not okay, you're not okay to anybody else. You need to take care of yourself and then continue to help others. Just always remember that. Don't exhaust yourself. Make sure you recharge. Go sit out on top of a boat and have a drink. Do something for yourself. It's okay. Well, I, for one, am going to take that advice, especially the uh, having a drink on top of a boat. I don't have any complaints there. (laughs) (laughs) But be excellent to each other and party on, dude. That's what should be done. Awesome. 
Brian, thank you so much for being a, our guest on your Cron today. It's been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate it. Scott, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for uh, any help you can. I appreciate it. Y'all have a great day.